and judicial systems within the European Union are so interconnected. And by the time a national measure threatens the rule of law nationally, it can very quickly become a new crisis. So we see that many of the crises that we are facing do not automatically start as EU crises, but there are systems like the banking system or the judicial systems of the member states that are so interconnected and these national crises can rapidly become EU crises. This episode addresses EU citizenship through a legal and constructivist lens. In discussing the multifaceted themes of crisis, EU citizenship and identity, Dr. Katarina Galaitzaki walks us through the concept of the rule of law, the late financial crisis, and Brexit. Welcome to the Diplomatic Academy, the Conversation podcast. I am your host, Petros Petrikos. This episode focuses on EU citizenship during crisis, and I'm very pleased to host Dr. Katerina Kalaitzaki, an early career fellow in EU law. Hi, Katerina. It's good to have you with us. Hi, Pedro. Thank you very much for having me today, and thanks for inviting me to the podcast of the Diplomatic Academy. Absolutely. It's a great pleasure to have you. Um, uh, just a few words for our guest today. Uh, Dr. Katerina Kalaitzaki was appointed as an early career fellow in EU law at the Edinburgh Law School in September 2019. She is acting as the course organizer for a number of courses, including European Law Moot Court, New Classics of EU Law, uh, and Brexit Withdrawal from the European Union, and finally European Union Law Ordinary. She has further teaching duties both on the LLM and the LLB programs in the area of European law, and she was also acting as the program director for the European Law LLM program during the 2019-2020 academic year. Katerina is also an accredited mediator in the UK since April 2019 and a non-practicing lawyer with the Cyprus Legal Board since September 2015. She was awarded her PhD for her thesis, EU Citizenship as a Means of Reinforcement of EU Fundamental Rights, Challenges, Developments, Limits, in June 2019, after submitting it in December 2018. The research, using the case study of the financial crisis, proposes that a constructivist approach to the EU citizenship can constitute the key element in reinforcing the current fundamental rights protection system through a structural link with the EU fundamental uh, based on newly developed doctrine of the uh, CJEU. And uh, Katerina's research interests lie in the area of EU citizenship and EU fundamental principles and values. Current projects deal with the development and or potential use of these concepts, including the rule of law principle during periods of crisis, such as Brexit and the rule of law crisis. So, wow, it's uh, quite a, an interesting uh, biography uh, and uh, our theme, EU citizenship during crisis. I'm actually glad uh, that we have someone who's quite well acquainted with this uh, as it's becoming quite a hot topic. So, um, Gaderena, would you like to give us uh, an overview in simple terms uh, about this topic. It's uh, quite a puzzle to begin with in a way, isn't it? Yes, thank you very much, Petro, and for the um, introduction as well. So, yes, it's getting very topical. 
but hopefully not for the wrong reasons because we have seen uh, many different things around citizenship recently, especially in Cyprus. Um, but I want to focus more on the constitutional aspects of the concept. So um, today, um, the discussion that I would also like to emphasize some things um, would include the two sides of the coin of EU citizenship, if I can say so, um, during crisis which would first involve, let's say, how EU citizenship is affected during crisis as a concept, as a constitutional and economic concept, but also, on the other hand, how EU citizenship can be used to resolve crisis or, let's say, to um, increase the uh, participation and involvement of fundamental rights and during crisis. So I see EU citizenship during crisis as having these two sides of the same coin. All right. That's uh, quite interesting. And uh, what kind of uh, what kind of crisis have we seen recently across the EU? I mean, we've seen obviously uh, financial crisis, which was also your what your PhD was on. We also see Brexit and our, that's, our, that's a process already. Uh, in theory, it's already been completed, but in practice, it leaves some gaps as well. So what kind of a crisis do you, we see now across the EU? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you are perfectly um, right. So we have seen the financial crisis, which is, I guess, one of the most important one, which started as a financial and economic crisis, but very uh, quickly and rapidly developed into a constitutional and social one as well. And although uh, the financial crisis may seem that is far behind us, in fact, the measures that were imposed during the financial crisis are still challenged before uh, the courts, both on the EU level and on the national level, including uh, in Cyprus as well. So the financial crisis is not, uh, it has not come to an end yet, if I can say so. Um, you also mentioned Brexit, which, if I can be honest, I do not personally consider it as an EU crisis, although a lot of people could uh, consider it as an EU crisis. But I would personally characterize it more as a culmination of internal constitutional difficulties in the UK. But of course, it has had many implications for the EU, especially in terms of how to let's say, prevent other member states from withdrawing the European Union and, let's say, assemble for the Union and for the institutions to maybe try to resolve some of the gaps that were created and some of the reasons why um, the UK was also intending to withdraw from the Union. We also, of course, have the rule of law crisis, which is a very, very recent crisis, the backsliding of the rule of law, as I call it, um, where again we see how the judicial systems within the European Union are so interconnected. And by the time that a national measure threatens the rule of law nationally, it can very quickly become a new crisis. So we see that many of the crises that we are facing do not automatically start as EU crisis, but there are systems like the banking system or the judicial systems of the member states that are so interconnected. And these national crises can rapidly become EU crises. 
Yes, so um, could we say that even though this is not a EU crisis per se when it comes to Brexit, mm -hmm. would we say that um, it's a crisis endemic to the UK on the political side? Yes, I think so. I would say so. I mean, a lot of people would also consider this as an EU crisis because they believe that the reasons behind the UK's withdrawal are deriving from the governance of the EU. Um, but this is not personally how I see this, um, because the UK has been uh, a member state that was always opting out from various policies. So it has, let's say, a bit of a background there when it comes to accepting EU supremacy and the, and the, um, the fact that EU law prevails over national law. So yes, this is partly the reason why I say that, because the, the UK has always faced challenges when it comes to national principles that are affected by EU supremacy. And I believe that it started as an internal constitutional conflict that culminated into what we have today as Brexit. Okay. Okay. Another question I wanted to ask would be, uh, building on the actual topic that you're engaged with, why citizenship and why this particular theme for your current research focus? Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. This is a very interesting question because I think citizenship is only seen from a very specific perspective, especially from citizens and from academics that are not involved in EU law. So, I mean, citizenship is generally understood as the status of equal membership to a country. So it has a more state-centric uh, perspective for many people. However, there are important developments to this concept, including, of course, the supranational idea of citizenship, such as the um, European Union citizenship that we are discussing uh, today. And although this uh, concept, when it was introduced with the Treaty of Maastricht, it was not really seen as something new or substantial. It is fascinating because it has developed rapidly with the contribution of the Court of Justice into something fundamental that involves a lot of rights, not only those that are currently in the written form, but also um, it is also expanding the scope of application of these rights further. So I think if I can summarize the reasons why I chose EU citizenship, it's probably because I think that it is a concept that through its rapid legal development, it can actually offer more to the legal constitutional environment in EU law than how uh, we have perceived it previously, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. It does, it does. And uh, going beyond this, because uh, other things that you look on in your research area include the rule of law, which you've already touched bases upon. Uh, let's uh, try to break this down a bit. What does the rule of law itself mean? Uh, what sort of implications does it have for EU citizenship during crisis? How does it work actually as a framework? We can maybe uh, begin with more simple explanations as well for uh, our audience who might not be specialized in the rule of law itself. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so before um, I explain the rule of law, um, as you asked, it's. I would also like to emphasize again 
what I mentioned in the beginning that I see EU citizenship as having two sides uh, of the same coin. So the rule of law is one of the examples of crisis where I believe that EU citizenship has been affected as a concept, but it can also constitute a concept that can provide assistance and can resolve part of, of the crisis. And I will explain this uh, in a bit. So on your first point, the rule of law in EU law is enshrined under Article 2 of the Treaty on European Union. So it is one of the uh, common foundational values for the EU and for the member states. And the respect for the rule of law is essential to ensure equality before the law and for citizens and businesses to trust public institutions, not only on the EU level, but also on the national level. So while the different member states have obviously different national identities and different legal systems and traditions, the core meaning of the rule of law is the same across the EU. However, um, as you also mentioned, as we've touched upon in the beginning, in the recent years, a crisis has emerged within the EU with a significant deviation from the rule of law. So while we all agree in all the member states that we have a same meaning given to the rule of law based on the constitutional traditions of each member state, during the recent years, there has been a significant deviation from the rule of law from various member states, which obviously has created a difference in the treatment of EU citizenship, which can ultimately affect the rights that are attached to EU citizenship. That could include free movement rights, voting rights, consular and diplomatic protection. So if we have backsliding in the rule of law in various member states, we see that there is, as I said, a deviation of the general meaning, which can affect different concepts, including EU citizenship, which again um, involves very, very important citizens' rights in it. Okay, so how, in your view, how would uh, EU citizenship help with resolving such crisis? Mm -hmm. So, um, as I said, EU citizenship has been adversely affected by the rule of law uh, crisis as many different concepts, but due to this uh, constructivist nature of it and due to this legal development behind it, I think that it can also work as a means towards uh, reinforcing fundamental rights further during the rule of law crisis. For example, during any crisis, including the rule of law, it is generally believed by various scholars that every classic concept or category of concept that could offer a ground or legitimacy to the EU's actions seeking to tackle these violations of the rule of law has to be revisited, including that of EU citizenship, uh, in order to, to be able to reinforce the, the rights that are included therein against any type of conflict with those rights. So EU citizenship has somehow become a normative foundation for the EU's action to enforce the rule of law in towards protecting um, citizens. So 
I'm not obviously suggesting that EU citizenship could resolve any kind of uh, rule of law backsliding, but I'm suggesting that, the, that EU citizenship can be used as a way to reinforce citizens' rights, not only the ones written within the list of rights attached to EU citizenship, but further rights that could also include effective judicial protection, for example, and other rights that are directly undermined from the rule of law. Mm -hmm. And this normative um, example, as you've called it, it it sort of uh, legitimizes this action as well, doesn't it? Because it has created, it has embedded this as a norm, essentially gives it some legitimacy over justifying such action. And uh, actually, this builds up on something that you've said, because you've referred to this constructivist approach, and it's something that you've looked at in your uh, research as well. So to my understanding and uh, the way that we use constructivism uh, across other disciplines in the social sciences, we use it to talk about the construction of identity, the actual existing structures in society and how these interact with uh, people as individuals and what it means for them. How do they identify? How do they feel whether this is a part of uh, the the question on national identity, which also takes in EU identity as well. Uh, But what does it mean for legal studies and why is it of interest here? I think what you described is very close to how I personally used constructivism in my research. But more generally, in EU law, this constructivist framework is seen as a useful tool for studying European integration as a process, let's say, but more particularly in my research, I adopted the doctrinal constructivism that it is more or less calling for maintenance of the law as a social uh, infrastructure, which demands more participation in the development of a law to keep it in line with social relationships, with interests and beliefs that are changing, and especially uh, in EU law. And also the constructivist theoretical approach is substantially used in my research, in my PhD research, to assess this transformative potential of EU citizenship and the ways that it is constructed through uh, the development of ideas, the establishment of norms, and the um, development of the Court of Justice uh, case law. And more or less, I identified that EU citizenship is never fixed and it should not be fixed, but it should rather be constructed as a concept to reflect the needs of the citizens throughout the years. So in fact, the constructivist approach towards citizenship allows this view that EU citizenship isn't developing practice, And it also allows us to uh, see EU citizenship's contribution to the European integration process, more or less. We're talking about something that has some fluidity here, essentially, that it's not static. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's the way I also uh, understand identities in general, uh, be it something much more concrete as citizenship, as a concept. I'm not going to digress by building on constructivism because it's something that I use in my research as well. But uh, it's useful 
to examine what you're studying, but also to address a couple of other things like contemporary trends. This season, for example, for this podcast, what we are dealing with is the concept of narratives. Mm -hmm. And my next question is about uh, (laughs) something very trendy. It's (laughs) COVID-19. So do you feel that based on what you're currently examining, do you feel that COVID-19 has the capacity of shaping or transforming EU citizenship? Mm -hmm. Yes, it is uh, indeed very topical and very trendy at the moment to discuss COVID-19. Yeah, I think COVID-19 has affected EU citizenship and unfortunately it has affected it in a negative way. At least this is my personal opinion and I I will explain the reason why. Obviously, we have seen since last March that the COVID-19 outbreak has um, forced member states to impose travel uh, restrictions, entry restrictions that directly contradict the rights enshrined within EU citizenship, such as the free movement uh, of persons. And although these restrictions imposed on EU citizenship have been imposed based on the justifications under EU law, I will explain why these justific- the, the, why these restrictions have adversely affected the concept of EU citizenship. So first of all, the restrictions that were imposed on EU citizenship rights by the member states are dealt by the Citizens' Rights Directive and more specifically, Article 29 of this directive provides for justifications of restrictive measures on the grounds of public health uh, that include diseases of epidemic potential as defined by the World Health Organization, which obviously uh, covers COVID-19 as we have seen. So the travel restrictions imposed by the member states are falling within these justifications. So we are talking about legitimate actions by the member states. And the Commission has further noted that these measures must not discriminate between the member states' own nationals and other EU citizens residing in those member states. So as long as those um, actions are based on the justification I mentioned and are not discriminatory, then they are legal, they are legitimate based on EU law. However, the main issue that I identify that has shaped EU citizenship negatively is the fact that because of the initial lack of an EU response, we have seen um, a wide discrepancy between the member states' priorities and responses. For example, some member states have prioritized the mobility and entry of workers and self-employed persons over that of students and economically active citizens, for example, which is creating this this division of EU citizenship between economically and non-economically active citizens, which is one of the main objectives of EU citizenship to prevent it. So we can see that the fact that we didn't have a harmonized action, a harmonized response from the EU has actually forced the member states to take their own measures, but that had eventually led to this 
concept of economically active citizens to emerge because of the different priorities of the member states. And this is the reason why I think that in such crises, including pandemics, we need a more harmonized approach, more coordinated approaches that are deeply integrated into EU law. So let's say an EU crisis mode response. Otherwise, we see that EU citizenship is undermined, is negatively affected, and um, not only uh, citizenship, this is the case for other concepts and values of the union as well. You know, it's uh, quite interesting that you've raised this issue when it comes to the lack of response that we've seen, because it's something that we've uh, also looked at at our very first episode in this series. And uh, I would agree that we need a harmonized and integrated approach, uh, as you've rightly mentioned. But it, this has indeed been quite a challenge at this moment. I mean, the EU is not fully integrated uh, as a political union. So it's uh, natural that some decisions, some key decisions might be slow. And uh, this is also reflected in uh, this debate that is currently taking place on uh, vaccine delivery. So the issue with uh, delivering the required number of vaccines in uh, across the different member states. So these are quite interesting questions. Uh, and it's, it's good that we've had some uh, officials actually recognizing that this lack of response and coordination is indeed a problem. Mm -hmm. So perhaps what we, we could be seeing in the future is uh, hopefully COVID-19 serving an important lesson for the union and maybe seeing much more concrete steps later on. Still, I mean, I, I don't want to prophesize or <laughs> anything, <laughs> but it's that uh, could be a possible outcome or things could get worse. Who knows? But OK, let's look at both. Uh, I'm going back to Brexit, but also looking at COVID-19 as well, looking at the situation back in the UK, because, OK, the UK is already out, right? It's it's out of the EU. It, it has clearly had to deal with the domestic issues that it's, it's had uh, as a result of Brexit, but also with the perils of COVID-19. EU citizenship, when we're looking at it, at it more domestically in the UK, how have these ideals and values before and after Brexit manifested in different parts in the UK. Like, uh, I mean, you're currently in Scotland, so maybe you might want to touch upon uh, this, uh, the different perceptions that we've seen in Scotland and England. Uh, and how have Europeans, as uh, at an EU institutional level, perceived and reacted to Brexit? You've already touched upon the second bit, so maybe you want to start off with uh, Scotland. Let's say. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, before I do so, I would like to uh, comment on something that you mentioned when it comes to COVID-19. And I'm, I mean, you said that you agree with me when it comes to uh, needing a more harmonized and integrated approach. And I just wanted to clarify that obviously we are not um, suggesting that the union should, you know, bypass the, the division of competences or act where it does not have a competence to do so where, I mean, conferred powers do not exist. But what I'm, um, I'm basically saying is that when it comes to areas that affect, that are interconnected, let's say, with concepts like EU citizenship, 
then the, the union should develop a specialized, if I can say so, um, policy to, to try and protect this kind of concepts. But you are right that COVID-19 has been a very tricky um, case because the union does not have enough competences, enough power to act in, in the area of public uh, health policies. So yes, this has been a very uh, tricky one in terms of how, how much the union could do and how much it could not do, or whether it has actually, it had actually acted correctly or whether it could do more. So yes, this is a very, very controversial aspect with COVID-19. Yes, and to add to that as well, I agree with you and I did not mean to hint that, you know, uh, that we should be bypassing any sort of uh, procedure or especially when it comes to sovereignty, sovereign member states. Mm -hmm. uh, but but what I've wanted to say is that because it's not a fully integrated political union, it's sometimes cases like this, they are a bit more inevitable. So you, you are right in saying that there the, the should be some revisitation on what the, moving forward, what the best approach would be in order to retain sovereignty on the one hand and at the same time to keep the unity. Because, uh, I mean, that, that's the whole concept of the EU anyways. It, it started off as an economic union and now it's developing, it's evolving into something different. And there's obviously this uh, controversy and uh, as you've mentioned. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And I mean, we have seen that the EU is developing rapidly, um, getting more and more competences under the EU, under the EU competence, whether this is exclusive or shared. But it is true that uh, even in areas where the member states are supposed to act, where the union does not have the full competence to do so, the member states should still respect and follow the foundational values of the union and respect concepts like EU citizenship. So yes, I guess it is a very difficult exercise to balance um, between the sovereignty, as you mentioned, and the unity and maintenance of the, of the different concepts like EU citizenship. Mm -hmm. Okay. Allow me to reiterate and go back to the uh, other question that I've asked regarding these ideals and values before and after Brexit and the differences in, in regional developments, let's say how Scotland versus England, how they perceived it as a first part and as a second part, how Europeans at an EU institutional level perceived and reacted to Brexit. As I mentioned before, I personally do not consider Brexit as an EU crisis, although many people do so. But I think that the different uh, perceptions of Brexit in different parts of the UK have affected EU citizenship differently and have also developed different ideas around it. So I don't want to get into the much uh, political uh -huh. aspects of Brexit because this is not my area either. But it is uh, widely known that in Scotland there has been um, a pro-European, if I can say so, um, approach, especially after Brexit. And there are people that are uh, pushing for for Scotland to to rejoin the European Union if they ever become independent as well. So in Scotland, we have uh, had a lot of discussions around EU citizenship and how if possible, this concept could be retained for the citizens in the UK, I mean, Scottish citizens. 
it is again very tricky to to discuss the different perceptions of Brexit in the different parts of the UK because this is not something that is harmonized through the throughout England or throughout Scotland, if you know what I mean. But in terms of how EU citizenship was affected, it is true that although this is not an EU crisis, there have been discussions on how concepts like EU citizenship could survive Brexit. And various scholars have revisited union citizenship from a more fundamental rights perspective Mm -hmm. and proposed ways that UK citizens, especially the more pro-European Union citizens, could retain those rights that they were enjoying uh, from citizenship. And I can give some examples of the different ideas if you want. Sure. So we have, for example, Dora Kostakopoulou that proposed the idea of the so-called EU protected citizen status, which could apply both to EU citizens and the UK, uh, in the UK and to UK nationals in the EU. So this would allow EU citizens affected by Brexit to continue to be subject to the same conditions relating to their residence, employment or uh, family reunification um, rights as they previously did. We also have um, Eleanor Spaventa who proposed the concept of former EU citizens idea and she argues that if we read EU citizenship constitutionally then it is fair that former EU citizens who have already exercised their free movement rights prior to Brexit will be treated in the same way as former family members of union citizens, for example, which has been developed from the uh, case of the Court of Justice. We have, again, other ideas that support, for example, that EU citizenship is a fundamental right uh, and status, which creates a direct link between the individual and the EU. And uh, the fact that it involves fundamental rights should prevent any arbitrary removal of those rights, let's say. To be honest, I'm not leaning towards supporting any of this uh, too much. I think these are all great ideas, but I'm not sure if constitutionally speaking, any of this um, is possible. And there have been a lot of scholars opposing all of these three ideas. But relevant to your question is the fact that these different ideas and perceptions of how EU citizenship could look like after Brexit um, are different in in the different parts of the UK. I mean, at least in Scotland, there have been discussions even between citizens on how they they could actually retain their rights under EU citizenship even after Brexit. So it is true that there have been uh, there has been a difference on how people uh, perceived Brexit and reacted to Brexit more generally. It's still quite fresh, isn't it? it we're still, um, it's still something people talk about even before and after uh, the actual event. It's still something that uh, it's brought up in discussions. Sometimes people might uh, <laughs> bring it up as a joke or they might engage in much more serious and deeper uh, conversations because of uh, because of it and because of what it means for different people and 
it's 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 quite a quite perplexed but also fascinating in a way it has both interesting and uh, puzzled connotations i guess yes i i agree with you i mean it is a very good exercise uh for the union institutions to see what has gone wrong um if i can say so and to try and resolve some gaps that were left and also to revisit concepts like eu citizenship and actually assess whether they they have this autonomous um, status that a lot of scholars have been arguing for recently. Um, but on the other hand, I don't think Brexit should define the union. So um, as, as the president of the commission recently uh, mentioned, we should, you know, see the future. We have lessons to learn from Brexit, but it should not define how um, the union uh, is developing or how the union is currently acting, let's say. Certainly. Okay, so this, uh, based on this whole discussion, I want to ask a final, more personal question, if you like, if you don't mind. As you've said that we, the president of the commission looks towards the future, right? How uh, the union moves on forward. Uh, what about you? <laughs> what sort of future projects, future research are you looking at? As you uh, mentioned in the beginning, my PhD was focusing on EU citizenship and during the financial crisis only, and it was trying to use EU citizenship in a way so as to enforce fundamental rights broader during the financial crisis. So taking uh, the research from there, I would like to develop it further towards looking at the different crises we discussed today um, into a more interversed analysis, um, if you want, and see how EU citizenship has been affected from the different crises, but also which crises could actually benefit from a broader interpretation of EU citizenship and how EU citizenship could actually try to resolve parts of, of the crisis. And this has also been one of the conclusions of my PhD, um, that EU citizenship and broader, let's say, analysis of it and broader interpretation of it could actually give uh, citizens um, further, further rights during the financial crisis when it comes to challenging the different measures imposed. So I will, I will try to develop this idea further into other types of crisis and to see how the different crises connect with each other, how the responses to each crisis connect with each other. Thank you, Katerina. It's, it's quite an important work uh, that you're conducting and in general it does fill in the gap, uh, particularly when it comes to this crisis. So at this point, I'd like to thank you so much for your time. It was great to have you at our podcast and I uh, wish you all the best with your research. Thank you very much and good luck with the rest of your uh, episodes for the podcast. <laughs>